This message is part of the series, Asking for a Friend, what we all think, but think we shouldn't. The entire series can be found at fromthefray.com slash asking. This is our fifth week studying Ecclesiastes together. And each week we get to listen in as Solomon addresses a different question. Uh, Question a week, the first question was, is there life before death? Then should I feel bad for feeling good? Why does life feel so hard? Last week, how do I stay alive when I feel so alone? And there are at least two common themes to these questions. One of them is that these are the kind of questions that people who are polite don't like to ask out loud. For any number of reasons, or those of us who are trying to manage a certain image, we may not want to ask these questions out loud. The the second theme is that these questions don't come from a, a philosophical, academic position. They come more so from people who are just trying to make it every day, just trying to make it through life. This is not about arguing the finer points of theology. This is about survival, which really is a good way to think about the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is not a book that is really concerned with solving all your problems, giving you mental solutions to why everything happens. It's more of a survival book to help you just make it through every day. Now, I'm not against academic stuff and and arguing or debating over theology. Actually, sometimes I think I, I enjoy those things too much because there can certainly be seasons in your life where your faith can become entirely intellectual and academic and theological. I know for me there was a season where I was way too interested. Uh, I spent too much time, I'll say that. I spent way too much time on big books written by dead guys and really just talking about the academic finer points of Christian theology and, and theology of different religions. And the reason I say I spent too much time on that is because I got to a point where really my faith was almost entirely intellectual. Now, if it's not obvious, that's not a good thing. The reason it, it, it can be dangerous if your faith is entirely intellectual is because the minute something happens that your mind doesn't understand, the minute God does something or doesn't do something that you expected him to, well, then your faith or connection to God becomes shattered. It becomes fractured, which is not a good thing. And eventually we end up asking questions like the question that we're going to ask this week. Can I just get God to do what I want? I don't understand why all this is happening. Can I just get God to do what I want? Now, I know this is entirely too polite of a question for any of you to ask out loud. I get that. None of us have ever just got mad and frustrated and said, is it possible just to get God to give me what I want just this one time? We've never done that. I understand. That's why this series is called Asking for a Friend. Because chances are we all have a friend who either has or will in the future ask some kind of question like this. And if it happens, then maybe you'll be able to answer them or have something to say about it. Can I just get God to do what I want? Now, whether you consider yourself a believer or not, super spiritual, religious, not religious, pagan, agnostic, searching, doesn't matter. At some point, all of us ask God for something. We all do. And that's not a bad thing. That's unavoidable. I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. Really, our relationship to God is based off the fact that we need something from Him. So we all come to God looking for something. Some people do it every day. Dear Jesus, please don't let me kill anybody today. Dear God, please give me a parking spot or a good cup of coffee or something. We all ask God for something. Some people only do it in a dire emergency when they're forced to admit really for the first time that there might be something up there who's able to help them out in a, in a tough spot. But we all do. What I want to talk about this morning 
is those times when God does not come through and give us what we thought he would or what we thought he should, when he doesn't answer our prayers. How do we handle ourselves? How do we behave? How do we navigate through those moments? Now, I'm not talking about when God doesn't give you a new car uh, or a good hair day or a raise. Um, I'm going to assume that the absence of those things, though you may want them, and so do I, but when we don't get those, they're not going to send you off the deep end. What I'm talking about this morning is an unanswered prayer to something like, Dear God, I don't want a divorce. I want to hold my marriage together. And God just seems silent through that. Or God, I really need a job. I I haven't worked in eight months. I need something. Or God, I don't want my kid to die. Can you show up because my my, my kid is not doing well and and I, I need you now. I want to talk about those moments. What do we do in those moments when we're pleading and God's not showing up? Well, at least one of the things we do is we get mad and we get frustrated and we you know, pound the table and we scream and we say, come on, God, what do I need to do down here so that you do your part up there? I need you to show up. Can I just get God to do what I want? Can I just get you to do what I want this one time? Ecclesiastes addresses this. Solomon gives us at least three things that we do because we can get pretty creative when we're trying to get God to do what we want. Solomon's going to give us at least three things that we do when we're trying to get God to behave. All right, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, uh, first part of verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Solomon starts off telling us how to approach God, which is a topic that Solomon knew something about. Right? Remember, Solomon's the guy who oversaw the construction of the temple. It took seven years, 150-some thousand men, to build the temple. It's a majestic, huge building, and everything about the temple was designed to help you remember that God's the one in heaven and you're the one down here. Just as you approached it, automatically your eyes would gaze heavenward and you you would look up at just this awesome, beautiful, majestic building that was God's temple. And into that, Solomon says, watch this, he says, guard your steps. Look at your feet. Do you know which direction your feet are going? Because unless you're extremely flexible, your whole body, all of you, is going to go the same way that your feet goes. So do you know which way your feet are going? Do you know what you're about? Do you know, do you know where you're heading? Now this is still extremely relevant to us today. Because you know that there are certain things you can do, certain places you can go, certain activities you can engage in, certain people you can walk alongside. And if you do those things, then usually that's going to bring you closer to God. You're going to end up in a place closer to where He is. And you're going to be all the better for it. You also know that there are certain ways that you can walk, certain places you can go, certain things that you can do, certain people you can walk with, that at the end of that trip, you're going to end up farther away from God. You can wake up and know if I do this, I'm probably going to feel closer to God. If I don't do this, I'm probably not going to have a great day. I'm going to feel farther away from Him. So Solomon says, guard your steps. Watch your feet. Do you know which direction your feet are really going? And this little verse, the beginning of it, is really a summary of the entire sermon today. Because Solomon has given us a reality check. And he's saying, as you approach God, take a second to check and make sure you really understand what you're doing. Make sure it's really God that you're approaching. And make sure that your head and your heart, your hands, your body, all of you is oriented towards him. And you're intentional about knowing which direction that you're going. This is a summary for the entire sermon, everything that Solomon's about to tell us. Let's keep moving. Ecclesiastes 5 verse 1. As you enter the house of God, keep your ears open and your mouth shut. 
It is evil to make mindless offerings to God. Ears open and mouth shut. We're going to get back to that in a minute because Solomon repeats it a lot throughout this message. Uh, But here he says it's evil to make mindless offerings to God. The first thing Solomon is pointing out that we do when we try to get God to, to give us what we want is we try to buy God off. We try to buy him off with a, a mindless offering or a foolish sacrifice. Now we have to remember that Solomon was a Jew. He was, he was a part of Judaism. Judaism was a temple-based religion. So to understand what he means here by a foolish sacrifice, we have to understand what what, what is a temple-based religion. Judaism was um, the old Roman Greek, Greek-Roman system of gods. That was a temple-based religion. Um, in a temple-based religion, God is over there. Or maybe he's over there, but, but he's in that building. Or he's in that statue. He's in that temple. God's over there in that box, in that place. And if you want something from him, then you need to go over there. That's where you're going to find him. And when you go over there, actually what you're going to find is you're going to find a priest. And the priest talks to God on your behalf. You don't talk to God. He talks to God, and then he talks to you, and he explains to you the rules. And if you follow the rules that the priest gives you, then at the bottom of this will fall a reward, and you'll get your reward. That's a temple-based religion. Now, if you look closely into this, you can see that this system can easily lend itself to superstition. There's always been a fine line between religion and superstition. Before you get all mad, hear me out. Because depending on the religion and depending on the priest that you have, there's an extremely large amount of rules. There's rules about everything. How you live your life, how you interpret the rules, who you talk to, who you don't. There's always rules about worship, always. If you're going to worship the God in this system, in this temple-based religion, you might have to sing. You might not be able to sing. You might have to stay quiet. You might need to use an instrument or, or not. Stand, sit, dance, don't dance, clap. What are you clapping for? You have to follow the rules. And there's also rules about sacrifice. Always rules about sacrifice. What kind of offering? What do I need to do? What do I need to bring to get God to give me what I want? Maybe you need to bring him a chicken. Maybe you need to bring him a couple cows or a goat or a big, a big bucket of wheat, um, or a bunch of money, um, or maybe your first child. Right? Depending on the religion and the rules and what you want, the priest will explain to you what you need to bring. And that easily lends itself to superstition. Because let's say I really need a job, and the rules of my religion say, all right, well, well, if I do the math here, it looks like the priest tells me I need to bring a chicken. I need to bring a chicken. But I really, really need this job. So I'm going to hedge my bets I think it's really better if I bring three chickens. I'm going to bring three, three chickens. Can't really afford it, but I think it's best to bring three chickens. And when I leave here and go to the job interview, I'm going to take this rock here that I found on the floor of the temple and I'm going to put it in my pocket like as a good luck charm just to make sure I do really well at the interview. And so into all of this, Solomon says, you need to be very careful because you can get mindless. You can get foolish about this. And you can think that the, the sacrifice itself is just going to buy God off. And he reminds us that sacrifice is not a substitute for obedience. We can't just skip doing the things that God wants us to do and being the kind of person that God wants us to be as long as we're able just to bring a sacrifice and throw it up on the table. Solomon says sacrifice, he's reminding us, it's not a substitute for obedience. King Saul learned this the hard way. 1 Samuel 15, the prophet Samuel tells Saul, What is more pleasing to the Lord? Your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen. Listen, the prophet says. Obedience is better than sacrifice. And submission is better than offering the fat of rams. 
Now, our conscience already knows this. Instinctively, we already know this. That, that obedience is not going to be a, a substitute for sacrifice. We still need to become a different person. Inside of us, we all know this. That's why our conscience will not let us rest when we're not striving to be the kind of person that we know that we're supposed to be. But this is where superstition helps us, right? This is why we turn to superstition whenever religion seems to be too difficult the superstition button says, well, then just throw some more offering up on the, on the, on the table. That's all you got to do. Superstition reminds us it's easier to write a check or carry a rosary than it is to be a kind person and tell the truth. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that checks are bad, offering. I'm not even saying that rosaries are bad. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying they're not a substitute. And, and only foolish superstition will make us think, that I can be whatever kind of person I want to be as long as I can afford to keep bringing more sacrifices and throwing them up on the table and going through the motions. That's superstition. God attacks this head on in Psalm 50. And there's, there's some humor in this. Look at what God says in Psalm 50, starting in verse 9. I don't need the bulls from your barns or the goats from your pens. In other words, you, know, you really think God's up there saying, I'm almost out of roast beef. I've got like one day's beef left and then it's all gone. So the first person to walk in here and bring me a cow gets whatever she wants for the next 20 minutes. Do we really think that's what's going on? God goes on to continue mocking this. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you for all the world is mine and everything in it. God's saying, let's just pretend for a minute that I had this insatiable need for all these chicken wings and I had to have them in my life. Do you really think if I had to have these things that I would turn to you to give me something that I had to have? You've got places on your back, your own back, that you can't even scratch without help from a friend or a tree. So do you really think the creator of the universe needs something that you have? He goes on, Psalm 50, verse 14, Make thankfulness your sacrifice to God and keep the vows you made to the Most High. Instead, God says, bring some real sacrifices and work on being honest. Now, what's he mean by that? Real sacrifice. How do we know the difference between what God calls a real sacrifice and this superstitious, foolish sacrifice that Solomon is warning us against? Well, if you pay attention to the things that God really expects of you, you'll notice that real faith in God will change your character. This is extremely important. If you're you're truly following Jesus, if you're a follower of Christ and you're trying to walk the way he wants you to walk, it's going to change your character. It won't let you stay the same. It will mold you and morph you and forge you into a different person. Real faith will change your character. And if it's not, then I would, consider, I would ask you to consider, do I have real faith or is it really just superstition that I'm leaning into because that's easier than changing my character? Here's an incomplete, cobbled together list of a few of the things the Bible calls a real sacrifice that will change your character. Bible says your body can be a sacrifice. Your body will be a sacrifice if you have real faith. Because once you realize this temple-based system is gone, and now the Bible says your body is a temple. Once you realize that, that God lives inside of you, your body is a portable temple, and God lives inside of you, then you start to treat your body differently. And you may sacrifice what you want to do with your body, and instead treat it like a temple, treat it like a holy place, and take care of it. It will change your character. Money. Money can certainly be a sacrifice if we handle it correctly. And I'll just say this about money. When you're bringing an offering to God, if it's going to be a real sacrifice, it's going to be a real tithe, a real offering, 
that, that reaches God in a good way, then it's going to change the way you live your life. People who make the same amount of money that you make and don't give should be living on a different level, a higher level economically than you are if you're giving sacrificially. It will change the way you live your life. It'll change your character. About a broken heart. How is that a sacrifice? Once I realized that it wasn't just your sin, it wasn't your sin or your sin or his sin, but it was my sin too. It was my sin that drove Jesus to the cross. He hung on a cross because I'm a sinful person. Once I realized that, it breaks my heart. I care about that, and it changes the kind of person that I am. How many times have you and I gone to church, drug ourselves there, maybe threw a 10 or a $20 bill on the plate, tried to stay awake during the sermon, and then as soon as we left, we're honking or cussing or yelling at the traffic that's getting in our way because we want to go home and watch a football game. We've all done some version of that. And Solomon would say, really, if, if that's what you get out of it, then you're better off just staying home. Because that's superstition. To think that, that just because you went and you went through the motions, that you're any better off. No, that's, that's superstition. And really, in your heart, you, you know better than that. Watch yourself, Solomon says. Be careful. He goes on. Let's read uh, verses 1 through 3. As you enter the house of God, keep your ears open and your mouth shut. It is evil to make mindless offerings to God. Don't make rash promises and don't be hasty. Don't be hasty in bringing matters before God. After all, God is in heaven and you are here on earth. So let your words be few. Too much activity gives you restless dreams. Too many words make you a fool. Four times in three verses, Solomon just now warns us against talking too much. Don't talk so much. Be careful what you say, and you probably don't need to say half the stuff that you are saying. In spite of all those warnings against talking too much, sometimes we think, well, if I can't buy God off, maybe I can talk him into submission. I can talk him into giving me what I want. I've got this really big word that's super impressive. I've been saving it for a good day. Maybe if I drop this word in God's lap, God will just be so overwhelmed with, with my vocabulary that he'll just say, what do you want? Just tell me what you want, and I'll give it to you. Last week I talked about the importance of listening to other people. That matters. And unfortunately with a message like that, often the people who need to hear it don't hear it because they either aren't listening or they assume that you're talking about somebody else. And that's sad because it hurts people when you don't listen to them. Right? You've all met someone, we've all met someone who, who insists on praying until the food gets cold or, or never uses five words when 50 will do because they just love the sound of their voice or they can't stop talking about them long enough to listen to you or God. Well, as sad as it is when people won't listen to other people, it's equally, it's not equal, it's much more sad when we won't listen to God. And Solomon says, it's not just sad, that's dangerous. That's dangerous. Now, these verses are important because they help us recenter our relationship with God in a way that kind of guards us from a couple of different extremes. Depending on the season of life that you're in, we're probably more likely the flavor of Christianity, the stream of Christianity that you're a part of. Depending on that, our relationship with God can really swing towards one of two extremes. It can either become entirely too familiar. We become too familiar with God where there's no reverence, there's no structure. Instead, we put a higher premium on relationship and comfort, which are not bad, but if, if that's all we care about, then we don't have any reverence and we say things like, Jesus is my boyfriend or he's my co-pilot, or my homeboy, or, or whatever. And in those versions of Christianity, when we sing songs to God, if you look at the words, the words closely resemble 
the next song that Taylor Swift is going to write about her most recent boyfriend. That's the kind of worship that we bring. But the problem with that, and I hope you already know this, is that if our worship songs that we sing to the creator of the universe could also be sung to our boyfriend or our girlfriend, then we're entirely too familiar with God. We've lost reverence for who he is. Other versions of Christianity lend itself, it's not automatic, but they can lend themselves to being entirely too formal. Where there's no warmth, there's no relationship, our relationship is too formal because we put too much of a premium on rules. And again, I'm not, I'm not against rules, I'm not against warmth and comfort. But if, if we put too much of an emphasis on either of these, they're going to push us out to the extremes. And in this extreme, where things are too formal, instead of seeing our relationship with God or as, as one of a husband and a wife, as Paul describes our relationship with Jesus in Ephesians, instead of seeing it that way, our relationship with God only brings us anxiety. There's all this anxiety. And so for, for that reason, when we, when we go to a, an overly formal worship service, often those words are dominated by liturgy. Now, I'm not against liturgy. I love it. There's a great place for liturgy. But in a liturgical worship service, we go and we get our menu for the worship service, and it's on the menu, it's got everything we're supposed to say. Say this, all right, stand up. Sit down when you say this. Stand back up when you say that. Sing this song, repeat after me, say this word, and then go home. Now, that can lend itself to a mindless offering where we just have a superstitious repetition of the words, and, and that's no more beneficial than a relationship with God that's too familiar. Both of these lack respect. Both of them do. In any relationship, with your wife, your kids, your, your friend, and God, we need to be respectful. And what does respect look like? In a respectful relationship, you will listen more than you talk. You'll spend more time listening because you respect and you care about the other person in that relationship. Not about sounding eloquent or, or saying something that's impressive or telling them about you. No, you care to hear about them. Again, faith will change your character. Faith will get you to a point where you want to do this more and more. Because our natural tendency, all of us, our natural tendency, when we don't get what we want from God, is to throw a fit, the same way my kids do. They throw a fit, and, and, and they maybe scream, or they cry, or they yell, and they think that they can, they can talk me into submission by convincing me why I'm wrong and they're right. And every once in a while I have to say, sit down, little human. Remember, I'm dad and you're not. And that's hard for them. I get that. Because it's hard for me to hear that from my Heavenly Father. You're not going to get what you want this time. Or you're not going to get it when you want. Let me bring us back and remind us what we're talking about here. We're talking about the seasons in our life when God's not answering the big things that we're pretty sure we have to have. When, when God's not saving your marriage. When God is not giving you a job. And into all of that, Solomon says, well, just listen. Now that sounds kind of flippant at first. And I'm tempted to, to, to get a little angry at Solomon here and say, what do you mean listen? That's the problem. I've been trying to listen and he's not saying anything. How do you listen to God when the tumors are getting bigger, the marriage is getting worse, the, the, the meals are getting smaller, and God's not answering your phone calls? How do you listen in that moment, in the, in the valley of the shadow of death, in the spiritual desert? God's not talking and you're supposed to listen? Well, I would submit that those are the only times when you're able to really wrestle with the question, are the scriptures true? Are they true or was God just kidding? 
Now, before you rush right now to say, sure, I believe him, wait a minute, you can't say that unless you're in this dark valley. That's the only time you really can know whether your heart believes the scriptures. When things are going well for you, you don't need faith. When you really need it and it's tested and you know how to answer whether you have it or not, it's only in this dark season. When you're not getting what you want, when you're not getting what you're sure you need, the rubber meets the road and things are not going well, is the only time that you can ask, what am I going to trust? My emotions in this experience? Or God's word? And I'll tell you what, nothing will take you to that place quicker, some of you know this, than the death of a loved one. Because then, then and only then are you left to decide, well, 2 Corinthians 5 says they're absent from the body, so they're present with the Lord. Do I really believe that? Or, since I can't see them and feel their presence right in front of me, I don't believe that anymore. So you can only decide that when you're walking through that dark valley. Now, it doesn't take the pain away. Absolutely not. Death is not natural. We were created to live forever. It will always sting. But in the midst of that stinging, we have comfort like this, and we can only lean into that comfort when it stings. How about a job loss that seems to threaten your future's family? Right? The meals are getting smaller, you've got to tighten your belt, you don't know where they're going to keep coming from. That's the only time that you can think about Matthew 6, 26-27 and decide if you really believe that. That's where it says God takes care of the birds and I'm more important than a bird, so God's going to take care of me. If I didn't get the thing I needed today, and I believe the thing about God's and the birds and me, then it must mean I didn't need that thing today. And maybe I'll get it tomorrow, if I need it. You see how that way of thinking, if you condition yourself and you allow faith, faith <clears throat> excuse me, you allow faith to change your character, that way of thinking will eventually make you an unbreakable person. Entirely unbreakable. Sure, you'll have to bend and sway and you'll get knocked down, but, but you'll be able to endure anything. Nothing will be able to you if, in the dark moments, you're able to say, can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. Someone who can lean into that verse, and here's and this is important, who can lean into that verse and say, I don't know how it all works out, but I believe it. I would submit to you that's the only kind of person down here on earth, under the sun, who is indestructible. Because I, I've noticed this in my life, and I, I would guess you have as well. The people who have the deepest sense of peace are the ones who are able to trust God with what they don't understand. To say it negatively, conversely, some of the most miserable, destitute, joyless people are the ones who cannot trust God with what they don't understand. That's where misery, and, and, and that's what you get robbed of your peace if you can't trust God with what you don't understand. See, this kind of faith makes you unbreakable. Because once you've settled in your mind the question of, do I trust God's word or my emotions? There's nothing you can't endure. I will, if listening, 
is receiving what God has to say, if reading God's word is receiving what God has to say, prayer is sending something back up. How do we do that when we're in the dark valley, when we're in the spiritual desert? How do we pray and talk back to God and send anything up his way when we're, we're pretty sure he stopped answering our phone call and he's not listening to us? Well, into that, Solomon would say, you need to either be real or be silent. Prayer, you need to be real or you need to be silent. Don't even bother saying the stuff that you just think God wants you to say. Don't just say stuff because it's what you think God wants to hear. What God wants to hear is the truth. That's what he wants. Really true, honest, sincere prayers, those things are spiritual, fertile soil where the Holy Spirit can do his work. And if you're not in a place where you're able to offer God a true, sincere prayer about how you really feel, then just don't say anything. There are worse things than being silent. John Bunyan said, In prayer, it's better to have a heart without words than words without a heart. There are times when the best thing we can do is just sit silent before God. But get this, this is so cool about God's character. In those moments, even if your interpretation of your experience is not correct, but you can offer it to God and talk about it sincerely, God still wants to hear your heart. He values sincerity over accuracy. Track with me, because this is such an open door that has brought me into a deeper place with God and carried me through some really dark moments. Look at this prayer from David. Oh Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? How long will you look the other way? Now, God can't forget anything. God doesn't forget So this prayer is theologically wrong. It's wrong. God didn't forget David. But God doesn't show up and say, well, sorry, Dave. Uh, I I don't forget things. It's against my character to forget. Your prayer has some theological uh, inaccuracies in here. And so you just earned yourself two more years in the desert. Go away. That's not what happens. David is pouring out his heart before God, sincerely talking about how he feels. And God hears it. I would say this. Here's my point. Regardless of your emotion right now, regardless of what you experienced and how you feel about that experience in the dark valley or the desert, there is a psalm that corresponds to that emotion. I would encourage you to find that psalm that communicates your emotion and just read the psalm back to God. If you can't put words to how you feel, the psalms are there to do that for you. Become a liturgical, that's what the Psalms are. They're liturgical prayers that you can offer up to God and they will communicate how you feel to Him. Are you alone? Do you feel abandoned? Are you depressed? Are you scared? Are you shaken? Are you mad? Are you angry? Are you happy? You're so happy you don't even know how to say how happy you are. Regardless of, of where you are in that spectrum, There's a psalm for that. Find that and be a liturgical prayer and offer those prayers back to God. It's especially helpful when you're in a valley and you don't know how to communicate your emotions. Ecclesiastes 5, 4 through 6. When you make a promise to God, don't delay in following through. For God takes no pleasure in fools. So keep all the promises you make to Him. It's better to say nothing than to make a promise and not keep it. Don't let your mouth make you sin. And don't defend yourself by telling the temple messenger that the promise you made was a mistake. That would make God angry. He might wipe out 
everything you've achieved. Here's one more thing we try to do to, to bend God into submission and get him to give us what we want. We try to bargain with God. If, if we can't buy God off, if we can't talk God into submission, we try to bargain with God. And, and we play some version of let's make a deal. Remember that old game show, let's make a deal? God edition. God will tell you what, if you give me two of these and four of those, the blue ones, remember not the green ones, then I'll give you one of these and six of that. We've all done, don't, we've all done it. God, if you get me out of this, if you help me out, God, if she's not pregnant... God, if I don't get caught, if they don't find out, if you can return, God, a not guilty verdict, then I'll become a missionary in a really bad place. And I'll recycle, and I won't say a whole bunch of bad words anymore, too much, maybe, and I'll go to church a lot. Do we have a deal? We've all done something like that. And Solomon says, you need to be careful. We don't get to play, let's make a deal, with the creator of the universe. So be very careful when, when you try to... to, to take an oath or swear a vow to God you don't need to do that instead as Jesus said just say yes or no don't be in such a hurry to inflate your answer with an oath or some kind of collateral people who do that are usually the ones who have some problem with dishonesty Jesus said just say yes or no you probably don't need to swear like tack an oath on top of it There are some times when you may, and Solomon would say, if those events arise, then you need to be very, very careful. Let your words be few. Wait, pray, think, wait some more before you decide that you need to swear a vow. A couple of examples. Marriage vows, right? Those are forever, man. Those are forever. So if a couple comes to me and say, hey, chaplain, we want to get married. Will you do the, the ceremony? I tell them, well, let me tell you up front, maybe. But first we're going to spend about six weeks together, and I'm going to tell you everything it's going to happen, it will happen, that's going to make you want to second-guess your vows and back out of them later and say, oh, I made a mistake, I'm sorry, I quit. I'm going to spend six weeks trying to talk you out of this, and after the end of six weeks, if you think you still want to do it, then maybe I might marry you. Maybe. Because once you put that ring on, once you stand in front of your family, your friends, and your God, and you put the ring on and you say forever, it's forever. So be careful with that vow. And when you become a Christian, you, you take a vow, and you say, I'm going to follow Jesus forever. That you, don't, you don't come back from that. When you do it, you have to follow through. Most everyone in this room took a vow, right? You said, I, I solemnly swear. I solemnly swear to defend the whole Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Solomon says, slow down. Vows aren't evil. They're rarely necessary. And in the instances when they are, be very slow to use them. But if you use them, if you make a vow, don't delay on doing what you say you would do. Because words are not deeds. Anybody can say words. Words are not deeds. Faith changes your character. Remember, real faith changes your character, not just your your vocabulary. So Solomon would say, "If if you swore a vow, then do what you said you would do. So I would say, before we move on, sitting here right now, if you have something unpleasant on the horizon that you know you said you would do, you know you're supposed to do it, Just do it. Don't delay your obedience with a vow. Because that's what vows are. We're trying to buy time. Instead of doing what we want to do, we make a promise to say that we will do what we're going to do. Don't make a vow to do it later, because you already know this. There's never going to be a convenient time to do it. That's why you're trying to talk yourself out of it. That's why you're trying to say, well, I I really didn't mean that, or I really don't want to do this. If you took a vow, 
Just do it. Whatever it is, don't delay. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Next time, let your words be few. Don't commit to, to something with an oath, but if you did commit, do it, because delayed obedience is obedience, so just do it. Confess, pay them back as much as you can, tell the truth, eat your vegetables, say you're sorry, make it right, put it back together, just do it. All right. Verse 7, talk is cheap. Talk is cheap like daydreams and other useless activities. Fear God instead. Can I get God to do what I want? Probably not. I don't know. I think there's a better question here. Because if, if your character changed any when you became a believer, and I know that it did. I know it did. Your character is telling you there's probably something better than getting God to do what I want. I often laugh or cry, cringe at the awful theology that you find in country music. Ugh, it's just awful. Sometimes there's a little bit, of, a little nugget of good theology. Sometimes country music gets it right. Old Garth Brooks, I think he hit it on the hit the nail on the head here. Sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. Remember when you're talking to the man upstairs? Just because he may not answer doesn't mean he don't care. Some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. Garth seems to be reading straight from Ecclesiastes right there. Right off the pages of Ecclesiastes. Alright. So when, when you're in the desert, let's, let's land this plane and bring this home. When you're in the desert, you're by yourself, you're lonely, you're in the valley of the shadow of death, you're in a dark, bad place in your life. Do the best you can to stay obedient, offer your sacrifice, listen more than you talk. Make sure you know which direction your feet are going. Do the right thing, especially in the difficult times. Ask yourself, do I really trust the scriptures? Can I be silent when I don't have anything real to say? Do all of those things, and then probably, maybe, God might eventually lead you out of the desert, lead you into a better place. But listen, sometimes he may not. Maybe you can do all the right things, and God in his wisdom may still not lead you out of that difficult season. Don't assume that you're even in this season because you did something wrong. Don't assume that God's punishing you, and that's why you're in a difficult season, a dark valley, a desert. I don't know. And, and really, neither do we. And, and, and we make a serious mistake when we try to pretend like we know why God does the things that he does. You know all that stuff that we say to people to try to make them feel better when, when bad times hit? When God closes the door, he opens a window. Nope. That's not true. And you know that sometimes God closes the doors, and he takes away all your windows, and then he bulldozes the house, and you're just there laying flat on your back. That's reality. I have a special hatred for this one. When, when someone dies, well, he died because God needed another angel in heaven. No. That's baloney. No. He died, and he's dead. And if you follow Jesus on earth, well, that's good for him now, but I'm still here by myself, and it hurts. So get out of here with all that stuff. And it comes from a place of good intention, but ultimately it does more harm than good. Because we're trying to pretend like we understand the creator of the universe. Solomon would say, no, what you really need to do, instead of trying to understand, figure out that, that you know all the things that God is doing, what you really need to do is fear God. That's the thing we need to focus on. That means stand in reverence and awe, yes, of how loving he is, but also how powerful God is. Remember, he's the one in heaven, and we're the ones down here. So this healthy fear of God is crucial if we're going to have any peace or any joy in any season. Whether we're on a good mountaintop or in a valley, whether things are going well or not going well, 
we, we, this healthy fear of God is crucial to navigating through life in a good way. I'm going to close by letting Jesus ask us one final question and, and as always, showing us what right looks like. Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, Don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot touch your soul. Fear only God, who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Jesus is giving us a reality check here to ask, who am I really afraid of? Who or what am I really serving? Which direction are my feet really pointing? Where am I really going? Am I, am I afraid of God or am I afraid of the dark? Am I afraid of God or am I afraid of the desert? Am I afraid of the creator of the universe or am I afraid of my boss? Am I afraid of God or am I afraid of the diagnosis? What am I most afraid of? Having my connection with the creator of the universe fractured and broken? Or, or getting what I want? Jesus would say, have a reality check and know who you're really afraid of. Now, before we say, well, that was easy for Jesus to say because Jesus was God, let me remind you, we'll close with this, how Jesus spent his last few moments of freedom down here on earth, his final minutes of freedom, just before he gets arrested and beaten and nailed to a tree naked and suffocates to death. This is his, one of his last final conversations in freedom. Then Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane. And he said, sit here while I go over there to pray. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. Do you remember the last time you knew, you were certain that something bad was going to happen? You could see it coming. You knew it was going to happen. Your whole body started to, to revolt against that. Right? Your heart started to race. Your skin got all clammy. You had butterflies in your stomach. Every ounce, every cell in your body was scared and shaken like a leaf. That's exactly what Jesus is experiencing here. He told them, My soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. You ever been so depressed that it took everything you had just to get out of bed and walk across the floor? That's where Jesus is here. So he went on a little further and he bowed with his face to the ground saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Did you catch that? Jesus just said, I want to do my job, but I don't want to do it like that. I don't want that to happen. If there's any other way to do this other than hanging on a tree, now is the time to talk about it. This is not the Jesus we hear about very often, is it? For many of us, this is not the Jesus we were sold. Some of you were sold a counterfeit Jesus who just said, Hey, I just want everything to be good and happy for you all the time. Just come to me and I'll take away all your problems. No, the Jesus of the scriptures here is shaken like a leaf. His whole body is revolting against what he's got to do. And he's telling God, I'd rather not do it like that. And into all of that, Jesus is pouring his heart out in sincerity. He's in the valley of the shadow of death. And God doesn't even answer. Keep reading. Then he returned to his disciples and he found them asleep. He said to Peter, couldn't you watch with me even one hour? We've all felt alone and abandoned and, and deeply hurt by the people we thought needed to be there for us. Well, Jesus' best friend just chose to take a nap then stay awake and walk with him through the valley of the shadow of death. 
Then Jesus left them a second time and prayed, My father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. Jesus repeats his request here. God, I'm all alone down here. My friends have left me. You're not talking to me. That guy over there has a noose. He's about to string me up and nail me to a tree. I don't want to do this. He's not helping me. You're not talking to me. Somebody come through for me. He's pleading. And God doesn't say anything. So when he returned to them again, he found them sleeping, for they couldn't keep their eyes open. So he went and he prayed a third time, saying the same thing again. Then he came to his disciples and said, Go ahead and sleep. Have your rest. But look, the time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Up, let's be going. My betrayer is here. Jesus' friends never came through for him. God never answered his prayers. He was facing something that he did not want to do. So what does Jesus do? He surrendered his emotions to something far more stable, God's will. In the midst of all of that, he asked, what do I trust most? And the answer was, the will of God. He resolved in his mind, what am I most afraid of? What is my heart most directed towards? Where are my feet really going? What do I really, really want? And and that's the resolution to our question. Can I get God to do what I want? Well, if you decide that you want what God wants, then yes, you get what you want. We have to resolve in our mind, what do we trust more? My emotions in the experience or God's will? When God is not talking to me, do I really believe the scriptures are true? Do I know well enough to sit silent and just wait until I have something to say and I'm able to put some words to how I feel? When we navigate through that and we're willing to say, I just want what God wants, we become an unbreakable person, able to navigate anything down here until we see Jesus face to face. Amen.